Good morning, everyone. Friends, uh, uh, let's look at uh, the prophet Isaiah. Since um, the first reading, the Jewish people have been in exile for many years now. And uh, they are, uh, what most of us would probably do, be, they would be uh, reminiscing about uh, the past. Uh, they would reminisce about the liberation from bondage, slavery in Egypt, about the exodus itself. They would recall the manna from heaven, uh, the quail in the evening. But the prophet tells them, remember not these things, remember not the former things, but behold, I do new things for you. Behold, a new way. My friends, when we look at that, God was present to them in their past. He is with them in their present, and he would be their future. And he said, it'll be a new exodus, a new start. Let the past be the past, and the future be the future. St. Paul um, kind of uh, follows that in the reading we heard uh, to the Philippians. He Remember, he's a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. And he was a great persecutor of the followers of the way for those who would follow Jesus Christ. But then he came to be touched by grace. Then he would become a very apostle of the living Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer. And he would live by faith. And he goes on to say, I give no thought to what lies behind. I remember not my past, but I push forward now because of Jesus Christ. In him, in him alone, do I have my faith and my future. Is what Paul is telling us. Again, we hear Paul, in other words, let my past be my past and my future be my future now in him. My friends, Paul, being a former Pharisee, he understood their ways. He understood how they thought and how they responded to things. And that's why he spoke so much about grace and about faith and, uh, and not being bound by the works of the law because for them, uh, the Pharisees, uh, that word Pharisees, although it can't be translated exactly, has this idea about being separated. So the Pharisees thought of themselves as being separated. Separated from who? Sinners. They didn't want anything to do with them. And the irony in that is that same word which connotates uh, them being separated, they themselves were people who put forth separation also. They would want to not only would they be a group that would be off to themselves, but they, had, they would separate others. And my friends, they believed that all they needed was the law. And that strict adherence to the law and interior disposition meant nothing. Didn't matter what your heart was like. Just follow the rules and do them precisely. And it'll be okay. And if you didn't, they couldn't stand you. And uh, we're told in this reading about the scribes. There's the scribes and there's also the Sadducees. And they were not friends. All three of them were not friends with each other. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes didn't like each other. 
the Sadducees, uh, they denied the resurrection of the body. They didn't understand that. And uh, oddly enough, uh, even though they had the scriptures, but they were more canon lawyers than anything else, they didn't really believe in angels. Although that's in the scriptures for them. So they were at odds with the Pharisees who had some kind of knowledge of, they understood a little bit. Uh, and uh, the scribes were just, uh, <laughs> they were just another group. And so when we look at the gospel then, we see uh, there are interesting perspectives here. And um, I want to remind you that John's gospel opens with telling us who Christ is. And I remember, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And he goes on to talk about a great light. But in chapter 3, we're told, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. John 3, 17. So when we look now, we're at John 8. And we look at this reading, and this reading is as much about the woman who has been caught in adultery as it is about the religious authorities of Jesus' time the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And they bring charges against this woman. And John tells us clearly that they are really after Jesus and they don't care about the woman. They are using her, and to be quite frankly, they are being cruel to this woman. Uh, what uh, is missing in the English that you pick up in the Greek is that they would have dragged this woman through the street. And then they put her in the middle of everything. They put her on display with great cruelty. So they clearly don't care about her. And furthermore, where is the man? One does not commit adultery by themselves. And the scripture said they caught her in the very act. So I'm like, okay, uh, he was in the house with her. Why didn't they bring him? And it shows you the mentality in the heart of the Pharisees. They remind Jesus and everyone present, Moses demanded death for such a sin, for such a crime. And adultery certainly is a sin. And that sin is destructive, as all sin is. It's destructive to the person who's caught in it, both the man and the woman, to the family members, and to that community. It impacted everyone. The Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, what do you say about this? And they even, with self-righteousness and smugly, referred to him, teacher, it's a term of honor to him. Teacher, tell us. And with their self-righteousness and their false moral superiority, they think they have trapped Jesus now. For if Jesus agrees with the Mosaic law, it will show him to be without mercy. And his trademark has been mercifulness. He's been showing mercy to everyone. But there's something else, too. Only the Ro Roman government could condemn that way. So if Jesus says, do it, the Pharisees will go and tell Pilate. Look what he's doing. And they will. 
Uh, we will hear about it uh, next week. They will still lodge that against falsely against Jesus before Pilate. Now, on the other hand, if he suggests the woman be spared, he would appear to be contradicting Moses. Moses is the friend of God. Moses is the giver of the law of God. If he does this, then he will encourage the people also to break the law. You see, they think they have him trapped. First, Jesus knows they care nothing for the woman because of the cruel treatment of her. It wasn't her they were after. They could, have they could have brought charges against her anytime. She was well known in that community. Everyone knew what was going on about the affair. We are told in John's gospel, Jesus does something. He bends down and he writes. Now, uh, here's where the Greek helps us. The first word used is katagrahina. And it means to doodle, to scribble. Jesus goes down to the sand and he doodles. Now, you know my, me, my sense of humor. Smiley face <laughs> and then not smiley face. But so what do people, when people are doodling, what are they doing? They are wasting time. They're stalling. So our Lord is stalling to give those men the opportunity to change what they are about to do. But we are told they pressed forward anyway. They continued to ask. They persisted in their wickedness. These would-be persecutors and prosecutors. We are told Jesus stands up and looks them in the eye and challenges them. Let the one among you who is without sin then be the first to throw the stone at her. In other words, Christ is asking them really, do you feel justified in your conscience and in your heart? Do you feel you walk in holiness that you can do this? And again, the irony here is there is the one who is sinless there, the one who has that right, Jesus. Then we are told, the writer of John says, then Jesus kneels back down and he writes. The word changes to graphene, to mean right. And it is true. We do not know what Jesus is writing. But my professor brought this to our attention. He said, perhaps... He is writing many things, but perhaps he's recalling Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, mark our sins, who would be able to stand before you? And he cleverly pointed out, my professor, there is another scripture, Jeremiah 17, 13, where it says those who rebel against God will be put to shame. And he pointed out that the word put to shame has another meaning, it is understood in their language to be written in the dirt. Jesus is writing in the dirt. So John is very clever. But we don't know exactly. But 
what is understood by many Bible scholars is that Jesus is probably writing very personal things about each of the men. Jesus writes something that each one would understand was particular to them. You on Thursday stole from the tithing that was for God's temple. You also committed adultery on Friday because we're told one by one they turned away and walked away, beginning with the elders. The elders are the smart ones. They got out of there. That would make sense because it says in response, in response to Jesus kneeling, no, in response to him writing something. So they were able to look at it and say, he's writing about me. How does he know I'm out of here? One by one, beginning with the elders, they walked away, or another way, they turned their backs on him. The story leaves no doubt that the woman was caught in that act. There is no question of her guilt, for the town knows her reputation and who she is with. No one has ever hated sin, which is an offense to God, more than Jesus. And at the same time, no one ever loved the sinner more than Jesus. Jesus asks her, has no one condemned you, woman? No one, sir. No one. And in that moment, as the men turn their backs on Jesus and walk away, she faces him and looks him in the eye. Then in that moment, it is the sinner who is left with the sinless one looking upon each other. Mercy. Looking at misery. Misery. Looking at mercy. And Jesus says, nor do I condemn you, woman. Instead, he gives her an opportunity to change. He forgets her past, and I think invites her to do the same. Forget your past, as we heard in the first reading, as we hear in the second. Look to your future he did for her what he would do for everyone. He came and gave them the opportunity to change. Repentance, conversion, change, life. Something the Pharisees and scribes know nothing about. And then he tells her, go, and from now on do not sin no more. These last words, so important as they speak about Jesus' mission while on earth, not coming to condemn, but to forgive and to heal and to give us the opportunity, the chance. The story ends beautifully with Jesus condoning the woman. Woman! Jesus says that about another, doesn't he? Do you remember at the cross? Woman, 
Behold your son. So we understand, John, Jesus is uplifting the woman. He condemns the sin, but not the sinner. We learn that the qualification for judging comes not from knowing the law, but by one's own holiness and goodness. My friends, the men, she did it. They judged her properly, but they misunderstood the laws. They misunderstood. Uh, they had no mercy in their heart. They wanted condemnation. That belongs to God. All of us are lacking in that domain when it comes to sin. We are sinners. And while we may judge, we must not condemn. Only God may do this. Only he sees the individual's heart and their motives. None of us is without sin, and each of us will have to stand. Each one of us, you and I, will have to stand before the judgment seat at one time or another. And we will be like her. Each one of us will have to look into the eyes of mercy, being the one that is miserable. And our Lord will give us the chance to put our past behind us, to start new when we sincerely embrace his ways, his mercy, and truly choose to walk in holiness and to truly be his disciple, not in name, but in truth. And Jesus is not interested in causing harm to us. He desires to give us life. That's why he came. My friends, uh, often, even as I get older, I look back and regret. Oh, I regret dwells in the past. And many of us have regrets, and perhaps we wish we could go back. I know I do. and could make decisions differently. But the past is the past. We can remember, but we cannot live there. Our repentance and the Lord's forgiveness is now. And in that, he gives us a future, a hope for tomorrow. The Lord's forgiveness, his grace, creates a new path, as the first reading tells us. A way out of the desert of sin and despair and death. My friends, in front of you is a painting. The artist who painted this is the same artist who did our evangelists and our, our archangels. And she's working on some more. Uh, uh, this painting uh, has been uh, in the parish now for about six years. And if it's unfamiliar to you, if you've never seen it, it is because it is in the confessional. <laughs> I'm just saying. That's where you'll find it. So if you say, I've never seen it, that tells me you've never been in my confessional. <laughs> and you should probably come for a visit. <laughs> my friends, uh, I asked the artist, and this is the scene from the gospel today, and I asked her to do the interpretation and to paint it, particularly to put it into the confessional. And uh, she did. And she has the image of the men, and uh, she has Christ, and she has them depicted holding a scroll, and the scroll is the law. He's holding the law. 
And instead of showing him on the ground writing, she actually has him holding a stone. Recall Luke's gospel. Jesus is driven into the desert, and it's 40 days, and he is hungry, and Satan comes and is cruel to him and plays psychological games with him and tries to twist and deceive him. And he finally says, look, you're hungry. Take the stone and eat and have life. In this depiction, I know it's far away, in the corner there is a dark shadowy figure. And the artist said, that is Satan because he is always around. Now he has influenced these men. And I'll get to that. But there is the stone again. This time Satan says, it is the law of God. Kill her with the stone. To which Jesus says, no. He said no to creating it into bread. And he says no as an instrument of condemnation. He has no interest in stones. Rock, yes. Peter. Lorenz, lucky for us, Jesus has no interest in stones. Instead, Jesus has interest in the Eucharist. The Eucharist is a sign that God is more interested in restoring your life than condemning it. It represents that God is interested in healing you rather than increasing any pain or suffering. He is more interested in your future than he is in the past. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice, for your love, for your forgiveness, and for your gift of life in the Eucharist. My friends, here is my warning to you. These men were self-righteous. They were egotistical. They were full of themselves. And they felt justified. And that is how Satan was able to influence them. Jesus in the scripture said, you think you have life because you have the scriptures, but you do not understand them. So you must come to learn the scriptures, their proper understanding and interpretation, and not just to read them and to have them, but to apply them in your life. They are to be lived. You are to walk in that holiness. That's what they didn't have. And there are many Christians who walk the same way, they feel justified, they are self-righteous, and they are full of themselves. These men, all they needed was the Mosaic Law. They needed not God anymore. They didn't need His grace. We always need grace. That's what Paul fought so much for. That's why he said, you, you are no longer bound by those laws when you walk in holiness and grace and light. My, father, my friends, this is the other thing. As a Roman Catholic priest, that I even have to talk about Satan as 
there are Christians, including Roman Catholics, who believe that Satan does not exist, that it's just an abstract idea. He exists. He wants you to believe he doesn't exist. But he does. Jesus used lots of symbolism and stuff. That was not one of them. He exists. Furthermore, he doesn't like you. Satan hates you. And there are people who like to kind of turn to him. And while he may give something, he will stab you in the back because he hates you. He hates you. Why does he hate you so much? What do you think the war in heaven was about in the first place? God created you, you in his image and in his likeness, not that angel. And that made him angry. And from that moment on, he hates you for it. So that war was about you. So he does exist. He is not your friend. He will destroy you. He will try to deceive you. He will twist things. He will confuse you. And he will use your friends, your family, this world, governments, and everything to get at you. So what you do is you stick to Christ and his ways. You study the scriptures, listen to Mother Church, and walk in holiness and stay clear of that creature. I can't reinforce it enough that even as a Catholic priest in this house that I have to convince people that he exists is an absurdity. He exists. He doesn't like you. He wants your destruction. He's not your friend. He will never be your friend. That's the way it was from the beginning. He can't stand you because you are made in the Father's image, in which he is not. So, My friends, remember, he does exist. And do not think that he is some abstract idea. Oh, it's just a way to explain evil. No, it's evil. He's evil. Mother, he's the master of it. All right? Now, next weekend is Palm Sunday. The liturgical color is red. And I would really like if all of you guys would put on red. Is it mandatory? Absolutely not. Well, why, Father? Because it's fun. <laughs> and I will be wearing red. Now, there's another fun thing. The word, katagraphine. Scribble? Graphene, right? Kids, does that sound familiar? Graphene? What's close to graphene? Graffiti. So yesterday, one of the teens said, Father, is that a derivative of graffiti? And I said, it is. So Jesus was the first graffiti artist, was he? And I said, you know what, brother? You got it right. Why not? Why not? 